morning, Renaissance. My name is Lawrence Hodge. I'll be doing the scripture reading this morning, and it comes out of the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And uh, if you have a paper Bible, please bring it out. And if you do not have a Bible, please, uh, you'll, we'll have the scriptures to the screens to our left and to our right, and digital Bibles, welcome as well. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lawrence. Okay, let's pray. Lord, may some word that is heard be yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, this last week, Lindsay and I, my wife, we had an unexpected visitor at the apartment. Here's what was happening. Uh, we need to move. We have a, uh, we've been cramming a four-person family in a one-bedroom apartment for a while, and we have another little boy coming soon to a church near you this October. Um, thank you. My contribution has been minimal. Lindsay's doing most of the heavy lifting creating this child, but thank you. Um, <laughs> And we need a little more space, and it's kind of a God thing. We found a spot in Kingsbridge right across from the river. We live way, way uptown, uh, a two-bedroom apartment that we can barely afford, and it's working out for us in part because the owner of this small building lives in the building, and they're looking for a family like us, somebody chill, early bedtime, all that, and you better believe I sold us hard. Like, you know you're selling your family when you clean your, your kid's face with spit, when you, and don't, you know you've done it, and wipe their cheeks. So I sold us hard. Well, uh, about a week ago, we had filled out all the paperwork, and the owner of the building called, and apparently he forgot to have me sign something, and he asked, could I swing by the apartment to get you to sign this? And Lindsay and I looked around the apartment, and it was like, wah, 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 DEFCON 5, we need to clean this place up. She went and got a tube of Lysol wipes and handed them out to my boys, my four-year-old and my two-year-old. And if you walked in there, you would have thought we were running some kind of like illegal child labor sweatshop or something, because there was little three-year-olds underneath the kitchen table, like scrubbing the kitchen floor. And I took a push broom and got all the toys under the couches, and, uh, and I, I went and I made the bed, and I fluffed the pillows and gave them that little karate chop thing in the middle to make it, you know, like that, just like my wife taught me to do. And she was like, oh, so you can do it, okay. <laughs> and um, we, in, in 90 seconds, we went from like mayhem to Pinnable. And then he couldn't find parking, so he couldn't even come up. I had to go down to the street to meet him at his car. Exactly, exactly. But we got the thing signed. Now, I share that story this morning because we're going to talk about the explosion of communication technology and social media um, that we're all in the midst of. Whether you directly engage with it or not, there is not a single one of us that is not affected by the way the technological ground is shifting underneath our feet right now. But I just want to open by making the point that image management is not new to social media. We've been managing our image, and there's nothing wrong with putting your best foot forward, but it is a slippery slope to putting a false image 
forward. And that's not new. Uh, social media has just created a, a new opportunity to do it in new ways. But managing our image is not new and much more nefarious than me putting forth a false image of myself is the way that I judge other people's false portrayals of themselves. And I just think we live in a time when technology has presented some new ways for us to mistreat ourselves, mistreat our own hearts and minds, and to mistreat one another. Now, I want to say right off the bat that technology is not bad. I don't think there's anything bad about technology. Typically, technology is pretty neutral. It's amoral. There's probably some exceptions, like weaponized anthrax is probably always bad. But for the most part, technology is neutral, and it can be used for good or used for bad. And there is a lot that is good about social media. Over this uh, last summer, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I'm off on the summer and one of the things that I get to do is I teach at these um, Christian youth conferences, and I got to interact with a bunch of young people in a number of different U.S. cities, um, kids ranging high school up to 19 and 20-year-old um, young adult, young men and women. And one of the workshops that I taught was called Ghosting, Cyberstalking, and People Watching. Oh, my. <laughs> and we got together and we talked about what's good and bad about social media, communications technology. And the first thing I did was pass the mic around and ask them to talk about what's good about social media. And there is a lot that is good about social media. At every single one of these events, one of the first things that one of these young people mentioned was memes. Where would we be without memes? Dark, dark Kermit has gotten me through so many a sad moment in life. Um, You've all, you've all done this. We've all participated in a Kickstarter campaign or something that got some new project to see the light of day that never would have got off the ground 20 years ago or more contributed to like a friend's kid's cancer treatment. And that is an incredible thing that we can do that now. These kids mentioned things like the way that we can expose ourselves to different perspectives and new ideas. And of course, there's a downside to that. Uh, the way social media can bring you right to the front line of, of breaking events. And of course, there's a downside to that, disinformation and all that, but it's pretty amazing that we can look through people's eyes who are there as it's happening in real time. Uh, social media enables us to stay connected with people who are far away. I mean, Facebook truly is the only reason my grandmother knows what my kids look like. It just enables us to have this connectivity. And they went on and on and on. There's so many good and positive things. but. As is the case with all technology, every advancement also opens up new ways for us to mistreat one another. Uh, it's not new that human beings treat one another good or bad. Each new technology just presents new opportunities. So for example, when I was younger, and those of you who you know, lived through this, you probably need to be reminded that it used to be like this. Some of you, if you're digital natives, like those students I talked to over the summer, you probably can't even imagine this. But if you were going to go meet somebody for dinner or whatever, you had to agree on a time and place, and then you had to meet there at that time and place. There was no, you couldn't call an audible. There was no, like, I got stuck in traffic. There was no way. You would have to call the restaurant and describe them and hope that one of the waiters would like find them and say, well, are you waiting on somebody? They're, they're, they're not gonna make it or whatever. And if you kept someone waiting late, they just stood out there waiting for you 
until like maybe, maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, depending on how good of a friend they were. And then they would just call it and just go home and you'd connect later. Now, just because it's available, I can be a little lazy with my relationships. I can be a little less respectful of your time. If I got one last thing I want to do around the house and I know it's going to make me 15 minutes late, I know I can send you a text message. It's not new that I would respect you less. It's new that I have this new way of doing it. And this, um, I'm sorry, that sounds really harsh, but it's just true. Um, the, <laughs> the social media has created all these new ways of mistreating one another, like ghosting. So ghosting is just like going like radio silent on, you know, you just disappear. My wife and I have a very good friend who is um, single and ready to mingle, and she is putting in her time to find God's husband for her. She's not desperate. She has standards. She knows what she's looking for, but she's not sitting on her hands. She's on a number of online dating sites. She's knocking out dates one after another. She is putting in her time. She's doing her part, and then she finally met this dude that we were like, whoa, I think this guy is the guy. He's super cool. He loves Jesus. Everything looked good about this, and they dated for a while, and each new experience was like, yeah, you guys are really on the same page, until one night when he was going through something difficult in his life, and they had a conversation in which our friend thought that she had encouraged him, meant to encourage him, but apparently did not, and we will never know what was going on inside his mind because he disappeared. The next morning, Sunday morning, before our friend went to lead worship at church, he broke up with her with a text. And then he ghosted her, muted, blocked, unfollowed, disappeared. This is a new thing. If you, if you don't want to be an adult, if you want to hide from uncomfortable conversations or you don't want to figure out what's going on with you, social media has created an environment in which that you can hide. That's a new thing. Um, people stalking. So when I talked about this this summer, the young people that I talked to, their minds went to like a really dark place. They went to like actual stalking, online bullying, some of the horrible things that have happened, and even to like human trafficking and the dark web and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I was thinking of just the more mundane people stalking of do you really need to see those pictures of who he's got his arm around now? Do you really need to know what she's doing now that she lives in San Diego? Do you really need that? Do I really need to be connected to my second grade teacher? Really? Aren't there some relationships that are just supposed to kind of be there for a minute and then just dissolve? You know, like, Mrs. Bober, thank you for teaching me how to add two-digit numbers. I will never forget it but it's over now. That's what I'm talking about. People stalking, uh, or cyber stalking, people shopping. This is my best way to describe this, this tendency I've noticed of like, I'm gonna call it, this is like a $5 term, but I'm gonna call it the commodification of relationships, where it's good to have standards. It's good to like identify toxic people, or especially if you're looking for a romantic partner, to have standards and be like, I won't go for this, 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 these are my non-negotiables, that's great. But it can kind of tip the line to just swipe. Like, if you don't check off all my boxes, nope, you're not for me. Nope. If you don't fit in perfectly with me, nope, you're not for me. Nope. And, and the, the thing that's sad about that is that is not marriage. What Lindsay and I have discovered over the course of our marriage is that it's wonderful when we're compatible, and we are compatible. 
But what's much more important to our marriage is how we deal with incompatibility. And that uh, pull to treat people like products, whether you're talking about a romantic partner or a friendship or somebody that you would even just interact with about issues, that, that pull to just cut people out of your life is not a good thing. Now, we could pass the mic around and go on and on and on about the way that we make ourselves sad. Um, Jordan, a pastor of Renaissance, one time said, when you get on your news feed, typically you're lonely or bored, and when you're lonely or bored, you compare your life to other people's highlight reel. And not just highlight reel, filtered, managed. And it's a real recipe for feeling low. I predict that the World Health Organization will recognize online uh, or social media addiction as a real mental illness pretty soon. They just recently um, brought a video game addiction in as a legitimate addiction that you can now get treatment for under many insurance plans. I think social media is right behind it because it is highly addictive and potentially destructive. With all the good that can come, there are these new ways that we can now mistreat one another because we are caught up in a time of unthinkable change. If you look at a timeline of the development of communication technology, it reads like a rocket breaking free from the atmosphere. You go way back into prehistory, and probably the first major communications development was the advent of the alphabet. Originally, it was pictures, hieroglyphics, pictograms, etc. And then at some point, alphabets like we know today. And this was a massive change because now you could send your words down generations or someone could carry your words to go bring them to somebody that wasn't present when you said them. And this was a massive reshaping of communication. And then it's like thousands of years till 2400 BC when um, the first postal service was invented that we have evidence of where people were doing that in mass sending words back and forth. And then it was like well over 2,000 years to about, well, 59 BC, before Jesus, we have the first evidence of newspapers in the Roman Empire. And then 100 years after Jesus, paper was invented, which was huge, because before then it was papyrus, which fell apart, or vellum, leather, which um, was very, very expensive, so you couldn't use it a lot. But paper was invented, and then 900 years later, in 1000 AD, the pen was invented, which was a huge advancement. And then we really get cooking, 1400, the printing press, massive revolutionary shift designed primarily to make the Bible uh, available to the average person. Before then, it was not. Bibles only existed in, in cathedrals, in higher academic institutions. But after the printing press came along, the average person, they had to save up for it, but the average person could own a Bible. They, before then, they were copied by hand by scribes. Suddenly we were able to print off sheets and it's massive revolution in communication technology. It's weird for us to think about because now personal devotion with the Bible has become so tied in with our relationship with Jesus, it's hard to even imagine that just 600 short years ago you didn't have access to a written Bible. You had to remember it from when you went to church and memorize it and chew on it and think about it. But big development. 1848, Telephone. And then it just explodes. Radio, computer, television, video games, conference calling, word processing, emails, cell phones, internet, blogs, MySpace. You guys remember that? MySpace? 
It's like Facebook's trashy cousin, uh, MySpace. <laughs> then Facebook, Twitter, etc. 2001, smartphones, computers in our pockets. 2004, podcasts. Some of you are listening to my voice on a technology that is only 14 years old. 2007, cloud computing. And finally, puppy dog filters. And uh, I, I do not think that we are at the apex of development. I think that we are in the curve. I think we're on the front end of some pretty massive shifts. More than ever before, our lives are virtual. More than ever before, our interactions with one another are interactions through an image of ourselves and with an image of somebody else. And it's not a time where I feel like we can afford to just go with the flow. It's a time where I think, if you are serious about following Jesus, we have to lead. We have to be salt and light. We cannot let ourselves be flavored by this shifting ground. We must be the flavoring inside this shifting ground. Now, I really struggle with this message because there's so many different things that I could talk about. This could be a 12-part series, easy, and maybe in the future, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll break it down a little bit more. But what I tried to do with this message is dig down and get to the root. What is one of the things that is underneath all these other things? And here's why I think I'm in a unique place to um, help us get at that. One reason is I am not a digital native. I am in the bridge generation. Young enough that I've adopted most of this stuff, but old enough that I remember what it was like before. And some of you are in the bridge generation or older. Some of you are native, digital natives. My son, Leo, he's like two and a half now. We were at his grandpa's house this summer, and they have all these old DVDs of Disney movies, which you can't get you know, online without paying a bunch of money. So we were like, sweet, we're going to watch The Lion King. I put that thing in there, and the little play button appeared on the screen, and my ton toddled, son toddled up there and started pushing the play button on the TV screen. And I was like, oh, oh, sweetheart, you don't... So I tried to like time the remote with when he would like touch the button to like make it work the way it's supposed to work. My parents were kind of cutting edge. I got one of the first personal computers, the Commodore 64. I learned how to code basic when I was in the seventh grade. Oh wow, clapping for the Commodore 64, sweet, yeah. <laughs> um, when I went to university in the early 90s, now email existed in one form or another since the late 60s in small nets, networks. But when I went to university, I was one of the first cohorts when it became ubiquitous. Where I it was my first email address. I was given an email address. I was one of the first students that submitted things um, online. I very distinctly remember when Al Gore invented the internet. And if, if you don't know that joke, then go ask somebody who's younger than 35 and they can explain it to you. Um, I remember when these things came into being. And we live at a time when the projection of image and the judgment of image is just unprecedented. Like, the term selfie was invented just a few years ago. In the 19th century, the average person couldn't afford a mirror. I grew up somewhere in between. When I was a kid, my dad would uh, take a picture, family portrait, and he would have to take two or three pictures so that it, you know, came out right. And then we would have to wait until he used up the rest of that roll of film, which could be weeks. And then he would take it to get it developed, and that would take three to five days. I remember the advent of 24-hour film processing. It was a miracle. You can take a picture today and see what it looks like tomorrow. 
We are at a, a, a time when the tech is changing so fast, we cannot afford to lag behind it. But I am not uh, an expert. In fact, I've always been sort of a late adopter. I remember when I finally caved in and got a cell phone, it was about three years after all my friends got a cell phone. It happened when I ran out of gas at three in the morning on a thinly populated stretch of highway in Ohio. Now, you may not remember this, but there was a time when if you ran out of gas at three in the morning on a thinly populated stretch of highway in Ohio, you were just gonna walk. That's what happened. So there's no one to call, there's no payphone. So I got out and I'm walking. And this van full of hippies pulls up and um, the big gold door slides open and a milky cloud of pot smoke comes rolling out. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I get in there and there's a loose uh, pile of I-beams. They had removed the seats. I guess they had scavenged them. And so I take my seat on this rattling pile of I-beams in the haze of marijuana and I think to myself, this is going to be the most horrific car accident in the history of driving. But for some reason, I just didn't feel that worried about it. <laughs> I just wanted some flaming hot Cheetos, like real bad. After that night, I said, I'm getting a cell phone. I bought a prepaid Nokia, put 10 bucks on it, which doesn't last very long because they charge you for every minute and every text, 10 cents for every text. And let me see, who was there with the keypad texting? Who knows what I'm talking about? For me to make the first letter of my name, C, I had to push one three times to make a C. You don't even know. You don't even know. But, so there's this part of me that was tempted to be like, you are not an expert, and I'm not. But I actually think that that kind of works in our advantage because I, I hope there are some experts listening. And I know some of you are. And you need to lead us. But I think what we need this morning is perspective. And that's the, uh, that leads me to the other reason why I'm in kind of a unique spot. I'm just coming off almost two years of complete fast from all social media. Um, two days after the last presidential election, I had had enough, and I said I need to take a break, and I, I was going to do something radical. I was going to take a month off, and I pulled down Twitter and Facebook and Instagram back before Facebook owned Instagram, and I did all that, and I took my blog down, and I thought that at the end of the month it was going to be really hard, but really good, but I was surprised to discover that at the end of that month, I couldn't get enough. It became two months, three months, six months, one year, and I just got back on Twitter two weeks ago. I just got to where I felt like, okay, maybe it's time to dip my toe back in the water two weeks ago. So almost two years of being away, and I'm at a spot right now where I feel like I can kind of see it for what it is. Having said all that, this last Friday, I committed to myself, I didn't tell anybody, I committed to myself, I'm not going to check Twitter all day long. And I think I checked it about 15 times throughout the course of that day. So I'm already feeling the pull that we all feel. So I think what we need right now is some perspective, and that's why I want to take us all the way back to words that are written for us in Scripture by the Holy Spirit Himself, because the more things change the more we need timeless truth. A lot of times we think that the Bible is irrelevant because of how much things have changed, but that is nonsense. The more things swing back and forth, the greater the need we have to be centered on something that has proven, stood the test of time, something that is true. And there are timeless principles in Scripture that speak very directly to what we're dealing with. 
There's a lot that we could talk about and a lot of places I could take us, but what I want to kind of scratch under is this performance-based value system that permeates our lives and is at the root of, I think, so many temptations and problems on social media. This value system of, if you can do something for me, then I'll do something for you. What can you offer me? And it's the complete opposite of God's value system, which is illuminated for us in this passage in James chapter 2, the first few verses. James, blood brother to Jesus uh, by Mary, knew him when he was a kid, uh, followed him when he began to claim to be God, the Messiah, um, was one of the early church leaders after Jesus was crucified and ascended back to heaven, and um, wrote scripture and was one of the first of uh, the followers to be martyred for his faith because he believed in Jesus. James, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, favoritism is um, giving unfair favor, unfair preferential treatment to a person or a group of people at the expense of another. It's unfair preferential treatment to a person or a group of people. And James gives us an example of what that looked like in his day. It is not difficult to extrapolate to our day. It's easy to bring this into what we're facing with our communication technology. Verses 2 through 4, he says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting, and he's talking about church there, whether a meeting like this or at your house or whatever, but he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, um, he's talking specifically about wealth, power, and influence, and, but you can extrapolate to platform, that kind of influence. Um, but it's kind of hard to hear what he's saying for me and for us, I think, because it goes so contrary to one of our distinctly American cultural idols, and it's this. You, you can earn what you want in life. You're free. Um, you, if you have something, it's because you deserved it, because you worked hard, because of some virtue that you have. And that is partially true. It is partially true. Um, it's not a perfect country, but in the vast scope of human history, America has created more personal freedom than many of its predecessors for most segments of our population, not for all. And for the most part, most of us living in this room today, if you work hard, you can do better. And if you follow godly principles with your money and things, things will generally work out better for you. But come on, we know this is not the whole truth. You know it is not. We all know people who have, not because of some kind of virtue or hard work. And we all know people who have not, not because they did something wrong, but because of what they face. And we all have privilege. We all have advantages we did not choose. Yes, I will grant you, I work very hard. And I am very conservative and thoughtful with our money. My dad worked very hard. And he never left us. Like, 
so many of my friends' dads left them. And he taught me to work very hard. Did I earn that? Did I choose that? My mom budgeted our family budget down to the penny, literally. It would drive her crazy, and this was back with a calculator and paper. It would drive her crazy if she was a penny off at the end of the month. Did I earn that? Did I choose that? When you walk down the street and you see someone who is low right now, like down and out, struggling with stuff, hurting, you really got to ask, what were he or she born into? What happened to him or her when they were three months old that didn't happen to me? And can I really judge and say, I'd be doing so much better with their life if God gave me their life? See, in God's economy, we all benefit from so many things that we did not earn. We were all handed cards to play. And you don't know the hand that anybody else was dealt. And you don't know how well they're doing with what they were given. And you don't know, more importantly, how well you would do if you had been dealt that hand. And so we just cannot judge. We cannot judge. And this is unfair preferential treatment. When you judge someone based on how they seem to be doing, or worse, based on the image they're portraying of themselves, we're giving unfair preferential treatment. We're showing favoritism. And not only is this wrong, James says it's foolish and short-sighted. Because verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? James is tapping into a cosmic law. It's a cosmic law that is plain as day in Scripture if you can be objective. But again, because of our distinctly American work ethic, it's very hard for us to see. And you may have missed it. But if you'll read the Bible fresh, you can't miss it. The law is this. Many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. This is just a cosmic spiritual law like gravity. It's Jesus saying this is how the way things are. And James says, don't you realize that some who are poor in the eyes of the world, God has chosen to be rich in faith. Don't you see there are reversals coming? Don't be foolish. Don't be short-sighted. In another place that Jesus talked about this was at a dinner party, and I just need to warn you, Jesus, I think, typically, a really easy guy to hang out with. I think he would have been a delight, told amazing stories. He always had, like, the wisdom for the problems you're facing. I think he was funny. He had self-deprecating humor, um, and everybody wanted to be around this guy. I mean, everybody. Kids, rough sinners, starched collar, religious experts, everybody wanted to be around this man. So I know he was easy to hang out with, but sometimes he could be a drag. And one time happened when he was invited to this very posh dinner party by a very well-respected religious leader in the community. And he went there and there's all these well-to-dos and they're jockeying for the places of honor. And Jesus goes, hold up, hold up. Ding, 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 gets everyone's attention. And he says, When you go to a dinner party, it's like, oh my gosh, it's that guy, you know, that guest. When you go to a dinner party, don't don't take the places of honor. Why? Not because it's wrong. Jesus doesn't go there. It may be wrong. That's not what he says. He says, because it's dumb. Don't take the place of honor, because then when the host comes in, if he sees somebody in a lower position than you that's more deserving, he's going to say, friend, move up, and you are going to be shamed in front of everybody when you have to get up and the only place available is the bottom spot. He said, no, 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 no. When you go to a dinner party, you take the bottom spot. 
Why? Because it's right? Maybe. He doesn't say that. He says, no, because it's smart. Because then when the host shows up, he's going to see you in the bottom spot, and he's going to say, oh, no, 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 friend, you move up here, and you're going to be honored in front of all your friends. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. Jesus concludes that story by saying, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And you better believe Jesus lived these words. Shortly before he gave his life for us, his disciples were arguing over who was the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus didn't say anything. He just got up, took off his outer garment, filled up a basin with water, got on his hands and knees, and washed their feet. The work of the lowest low-down slave. Fast forward 2,000 years, most famous person in history. Today, if you look up Guinness Book of World Record, the Bible is the greatest selling work of literature in the history of existence. Many who are last will be first. And so as we think about engaging social media and God's upside down economy, where my temptation is always, what can you do for me? You know, I'll love you if you can love me. Why is it that I check how many followers you have before I decide whether I retweet you? Why is it that I um, see how many other people have retweeted it before I decide whether I agree with what you said? Why is it that certain comments and likes and favorites and retweets matter more to me than others? Why is it that I have this performance-based mentality when God's mentality is not you love somebody because they can love you. His is, no, no. You don't love someone because of what they can do for you. You love them because of what I did for them. And God's economy is we love because God is love, and God first loved me. I don't need anybody to love me. I don't need it. I don't need it because God has first loved me. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. And so I'd like to just hazard some suggestions on how we can engage social media in a more God-oriented way. There are three. First, I want to suggest that we be thoughtful. And I say that because things have moved too quickly. Uh, there's no etiquette. My parents taught me how to answer the phone when I was a kid. Thank you for calling the Travis residence. How may I direct your call? Literally. There's no etiquette. <laughs> There's no etiquette now. It's moved too fast. There's no, the legislation can't keep up. The regulation can't keep up. It's, it's like a runaway freight train, and we're just on the front end of this. We cannot afford to follow, friends. We cannot just go with the flow. If you're a follower of Jesus, we can't just say, I'm going to do it because it's there. We have to lead. We have to guide the flow. We have to be salt and light. So have fun. Social media is fun. Experiment and make mistakes, no problem, but learn from them. And we've got to talk about it. We've got to just discuss, study, debrief, and I hope the experts among us will stand up and lead us because we are in desperate need of leadership. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be prayerful. Um, there's a lot of ways that we could pray for social media. I want to share with you something that um, a pastor that I really um, respect, Pastor Rich Velotas at New Life Fellowship in Queens, he um, shared this on social media earlier this week. Both Tripp and Jordan forwarded this to me. Um, and I would strongly encourage you to go follow him on Twitter. It's at Rich Velotas. Um, but he shared 15 ways to pray for social media. I'm just going to share the top five. And then later on, you can go look it up. But this is what he wrote. Lord, 
Give me an identity that is grounded in your love and not in the likes, retweets, or favorites of others. Lord, give me the strength to savor the moment rather than document it on social media. Lord, grant me contentment with my life so that I don't compare myself to others. Lord, give me wisdom to know what to share and what not to share. Lord, give me grace for those that I'm emotionally allergic to on social media. And I think we could all use a little of that grace. Since I've been back, um, one of the things I noticed about being off social media is that I just prayed a lot more. And it's not because I'm some kind of godly person, it's because I was bored. I, I would have a couple of minutes where I was bored, and when I, I would used to reach into my pocket, and then I would just kind of look around and just pray and talk to God about things that were going on. I'm not a very good prayer. I do not need anything to distract me from being a good prayer. But if I'm going to do that, if we're going to do that, if I'm going to trade prayer for social media, can we at least pray about how we use social media? Could we be prayerful about how we engage before you comment, before you block, before you like, before you disagree? Could you talk to God about it? Could you invite him in? And then last thing, third thing, is we've got to be deeply grounded in our identity in Christ because God is love and we are loved. And my best recommendation for that is we have to take a break. You've got to take a break. If you're from the bridge generation, then you kind of know what it felt like before and you know you need a break. If you're a digital native, you don't even know what you're missing. You've got to take a break. My wife and I, for a number of months, we did something called uh, No Media Mondays because... Uh, you know, alliteration. Um, and No Media Mondays was no, me no screens. It wasn't strictly no media. Like, we were allowed to um, read books, paper books. It's technically media. We were allowed to play board games, that sort of thing. Um, we were allowed to make babies, apparently. That was allowed, No Media Monday. Um, but we were not allowed screens, TV, social media, whatever. No Media Monday. And if you're feeling a little like right now about that, you need it. You need it. And I'm telling you, it's going to be hard. It's like withdrawal. You're going to feel it. And I don't say that lightly. It's, you will experience withdrawal symptoms. But if you, can, if you can sweat through that, the third time, the fourth time, it'll start to feel okay. And I promise you, the fifth time, the sixth time, you're going to start to look forward to it. I'm not just talking about power your phone down. We power our phones down and put them in a drawer. And a day will come when you actually power your phone down and put it in the drawer and you're going to feel a weight fall off your shoulder. Now, if you're a heavy user, you might need more. And I use that language intentionally. You might need to take a week off every month or every three months. You might need to take a whole month off and see what happens. And I think you're going to be surprised to discover what I was surprised to discover. And that is, I liked it. Really liked it. So I wish I had more time to talk about this, but just briefly, I was a lot happier. Like, just happier. Everyone wants to be happy. Get off social media for a while. If you really want to be happy. I was happier. Um, I did pray more. I had stuff to talk to uh, with people. Conversations used to go like this. Like, oh, hey, man, how, what's, what's going on? Uh, um, hey, I saw that you got a promotion. How's that going? Yeah, it's, it's going pretty good. Hey, I saw that you guys were at the beach this summer with the boys. They look cute. Yeah, we were. Yeah, you saw that, right? Um, hey, um, I, I saw that uh, you and so-and-so are getting kind of serious. Is that, did I see that right? Yeah, you saw that, right? 
That was the conversation. Now the conversation is, what's going on? You could have cured cancer, got married, gone to prison, anything in the last two. I have no idea what's going on with you. We have so much to talk about. And I've been so much more productive. Friends, in the last two years, I finished a novel that I've been trying to write since I was in high school. And I'm on the fifth revision right now. And it's because some of the times when I went to reach for, would reach for my phone to check my news feed, I opened up the notes feature and I read what I wrote yesterday and I picked up and on the train I wrote a little bit more. And I did something I've been dreaming about doing my whole life instead of just letting day after day melt by. We need to be deeply grounded in our identity in Christ and I think you just have to take a break. There's no other way to do it. I hope every single one of us will come up with a plan, whether it's no Snap Sunday or no Media Monday or whatever it is, come up with a plan to take a break. And if we do, I think we have one of the most unique opportunities that followers of Jesus have ever had in history. And to illustrate it, I want to tell you about my personal hero, Fred Rogers. I'm not joking. Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is like my personal hero, and he has been since before he recently became kind of cool among hipsters with the new documentary and all that kind of stuff. I love this man. If you, if you haven't watched the documentary, watch it. He's an incredible dude. Definitely a guy that put himself last and then God used first. So his origin story is he graduated from seminary and um, he was exposed to television for the first time, black and white TV, and he saw some, uh, some guys hitting each other in the face with pies. I think he was talking about the Three Stooges, but he never named the show. And he just thought, this is nonsense. And he went home and he told his parents, this incredible opportunity and it's just being used for nonsense. And out of that was born Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And over 40 years of penning thousands of episodes and writing tons of songs with the basic message that you are loved and that people can like you just the way that you are, he had millions of people tuning into this show at the height of this long career. His testimony before Congress almost single-handedly saved public television in the United States of America. And he was a smart cookie. He was subversive in his own way. I have an image that I want to show of he and an African-American police officer bathing their feet in a little baby pool that aired in one of his episodes. When this episode aired, it was a hot day in the neighborhood, and the police officer came by, and Fred Rogers was bathing his feet, and he invited him to come and bathe his feet next to him. When that episode was aired, if you changed the channel, you would have seen black kids getting chased out of white schools because desegregation was happening. When those two bathed their feet next to each other, you could change the channel and see black people being sprayed by fire hoses by police officers. He knew what he was doing when he aired that episode. I got a little homework assignment for you. When you go home, I want you to go to YouTube and I want you to search Mr. Rogers' acceptance speech. And I want you to watch his uh, 1997 acceptance of the Emmy when he was awarded it. He comes up on stage to receive the Emmy, biggest platform probably he ever had in front of some of the most influential people in the world. And he says, a lot of people have uh, helped me to become who I am. That's true of all of us. All of us have had people who have loved us into being. Would you take 10 seconds right now to think about the men and women who have helped you to become who you are? I'll watch the clock. And then he watches his watch for 10 seconds. You know how they give you like a tight 30 seconds for those speeches? This man gave away his time on that platform 
to the aunts, grandmothers, third grade teachers, youth ministers, good friends, who in God's economy are the true stars of this whole thing. And then at the end he says, how glad they must be to know the difference that you feel that they have made on you. And you need to go watch this video because when the camera pans over the crowd, you'll see some celebs dabbing their eyes. It's so unusual and so countercultural, so unlike any other acceptance speech that's ever been spoken on that stage, that it just cuts right to the heart. And what I wonder is, is it possible that we could look at this opportunity that's been presented to us of this incredible advancement in communication technology and media and do something like what he did, that maybe a few of us could do it with the rest of us cheering you on, or maybe all of us together could not go with the flow but guide the flow in a world that is increasingly virtual, could we have some realness? In a world that is increasingly presentational, could we have some depth? In a world that is increasingly defined by a strict performance-based value system, could we love because God is love and because we are loved? My prayer for this message has been very simple but powerful. I pray that after today, every single one of us would engage social media differently. That we would never tweet, comment, follow, block, like, retweet, unfollow the same way again. In short, I pray the prayer that Fred Rogers prayed every time that he got up in front of that screen to talk to America's children, the prayer that I prayed before I got up to talk to you today, I would like to pray that over all of our engagement with social media. It goes like this. Lord, let some word that is heard be yours. Amen.